Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast where we talk about plant things. I am Tegan. Hello, I'm Joram. Welcome. Why do you do that to me every time? Hello. What? what? Be nice to our listeners. This is what I do to you every time, Tegan. Pause briefly. Um, what have you been up to this week? What exciting things have happened in, in the um, world of Yoram? I gave a talk for the first time in a long time. Um, and it's been fun. It's just like a small career talk thing. Um, I did that before. Like, just saying like how amazing I am and how to get where I am. Which is mostly like luck like, and privilege. Is that your talk? That sounds amazing. <laughs> so it's, it's about like how slides. you became... I mean, so you do professional psychom, like your job is psychom. Mm -hmm. um, shocking to everybody who's listening to our podcast and how chaos it is. But Yoram does this for a living. Um, I don't, just by the way. I'm an amateur. Yoram's a professional. Uh, so you just talk about like how you sort of left academia and or how you came into academia and then left it and then... Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah, cool, it's, cool. For, it's for like a student initiative in, I think, in all of Germany. Um, and... They were interested in science communication as a career goal. They have a week-long conference going on um, in, in the past week. And they had all kinds of different careers. And one of them was science communication that I presented and gave my, my okay. two cents about. And I, I, I had already a presentation ready for it. But I looked at it and from last year or the year before. And I'm like, ah, I don't really like it. I had to make a new presentation from scratch. And it was sort of fun. Something I used to do a mm. lot in my job before, but then now with um, COVID and also having a child and being on parental leave, I didn't speak in front of an audience for a while. And this one was like 100 people or something, even like a bigger audience. So it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I realized that I enjoy doing this sort of thing like and presenting myself and being an attention whore. I enjoy that very much. <laughs> I like that too. I think I think that may be why we think it's okay for us to talk for one hour <laughs> and have other people presumably listen to us. Yeah, I like I like it a lot. Um and yeah. I really miss it. And I, I you can't get the same thing on Zoom, I think. It's like that in person contact is really extra fun. I mean it wasn't in person. It was also on Zoom. Oh no. Okay. My well talk. now I just edit that out. But <laughs> no, it's fine. They used uh, um um another software that I didn't know where they they could collect all the questions at the uh, at the same time, and people could vote on the questions. So for the conference, it was okay. really nice because yeah, I, I've seen that talk, where it's yeah, yeah, it was like all integrated, worked very well, and I w I was amazed because I was I'm used to like forty five minutes of um, can you hear me? Is my camera on? Let me restart my computer. Let me go to a different house. Uh, this is how it usually goes with us i don't mind the technical difficulty stuff i don't like that when i'm talking i can't see the faces like i want mm. to see the i mean i do obviously mind but like i like to see the feedback when i'm speaking because otherwise i i mean my my personality is that i panic and then i just get louder and louder and louder and more like more and more flamboyant like are you listening now and i'm starting to wave my hands in the air and like do a do 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 do, -do like do a little dance and like <laughs> hoping that because i feel like if i can't see them i can't tell if they're engaged and i want them want to lock eyes with every single member of that audience and be like yeah look into my soul learn what i have to say feel my wisdom no i i just yeah I, I just stare in the dead black eye of my camera and just <laughs> focus on that so in, because i know then for the others it will look like i'm looking at them directly but for me it's just this narrow black tunnel that i'm looking into so i i have no idea if people are watching me 
There's a weird thing with the new iPhone, right? Where it has this thing where, like, if you stare at the screen, it changes where your eyes are focused to make it look like you're staring yeah. directly at the camera, so that the person on the screen feels more connection. But it's I thought creepy. it was just like in the betas or something, and they didn't put it in there. I think the no. Release. I think it's it's there, but you can switch it on and off. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Because I think this. Because I this saw becomes somebody uncanny. had it and. Yeah, and they thought they had it, and they thought it was actually a filter that was because it also changes the shape of your eyes because it's not perfect. So they're like, "Is this filter making my eyes look more circular?" This seems really problematic. Like, what what's happening here? And it was just this yeah. weird tracking thing. I wanted to remove all blinking from me. I want to be ever staring at my <laughs> my conversation partner. Yeah, that's that's great. What what did you do last week? All right, so my, <laughs> this is really ridiculous. My exciting news. So I've been like walking outside a lot. I think spring has happened in London now. We've got crocuses out. We've got daffodils out. We've got violets out. Like it's really uh, snowdrops. It's on. It's happening. I mean, snowdrops like we in said, January. Like we said last week, it's a month earlier now than it used to be in yeah. the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Apparently the first snowdrops were already seen on the 1st of January this year. That seems early. I know they're called snowdrops. So like they should be dropping out of the snow, rising out of something, something. Um, I think they're related to snow. Maybe they just look snow-like. I don't really understand that. But I don't understand this whole European plant things. But anyway, it's beautiful and <laughs> springy outside, which is lovely. Um, the sad news is my cat left. He has now emigrated to Australia. He didn't like the home I was providing for him, so he's gone to live in his, with his own family <laughs> he's, in Australia. He's looking for fortune um, abroad, overseas. Yeah, yeah. He's, literally, <laughs> he's literally in Singapore right now. I think he's, he's maybe now on the plane again to Australia. It's, just, um, it's ridiculous. This cat came from Abu Dhabi to London, and now it's gone from London to Singapore, and then it's going to go from Singapore to Melbourne, and then Melbourne to Sydney. What so an exciting career cat. for this cat. See more of the world than I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a comment on you, not on, on Slopey the Cat. But I went, <laughs> unrelated to all of that, I went to the park um, a couple of days back just at my lunch break to get a coffee, and I saw a bird at the park. Yoram, I, you're, not, you're not responding as excitedly. This is the problem. You're not responding as excitedly. There was a bird <laughs> you at have the to park, go, okay? You have to become Look loud and louder, Tegan. I want, to, I want to see you juggle some things on your desk so to, to get bird, my attention. A bird, Yoram, a bird! <laughs> <laughs> like tweet 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 went the bird no so there's this bird I'm just sitting on the railing but I mean it was clearly a bird that didn't belong there it was it sort of looked a little bit like a a lovebird do you know what a lovebird looks like no I don't know what a lovebird looks like I only know it as a saying look at these two lovebirds google lovebird and then imagine that bird but kind of bleached like it was sort of that bird had been scrubbed mm. and it was very pale like very pale sort of pastel colors very 2020 living room style like fashion <laughs> and he was like it's like this bird sitting there like, this bird clearly doesn't belong here it must be somebody's pets and it's it's escaped i should go and like say hello and check him out and see if he's okay and ask him like where his family is so i'm, I'm going up to this bird and it was i was also taking photos of with with my phone and i was getting closer and closer and it sort of didn't seem that concerned it was just sort of like actually posing a little bit for the camera and looking at me and then this family walked past it like straight like right next to it and it still didn't fly away i was like okay it's, it's clearly somebody's pet what am i going to do because this bird is lost in the wild here it's going to get eaten by a duck i guess ducks would eat a bird i don't know what ducks eat probably <laughs> birds probably love birds um 
<laughs> so he's sitting, and then I went up to him, and I was, I was putting my finger out, you know, that thing where you put mm-hmm. the finger out so that you can sort of pet them on their chest or let them stand on you. And I was just about to pet him, and this man <laughs> turns to me like this man walks up, and he's like, so you like my bird, huh? <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, sir? <laughs> he's like, yeah, that's that's my bird. I was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to... Um, yeah, I just I just thought he was like maybe lost and he'd say, No no no, it's it's my pet bird. I just I bring him out for a fly every few days, you know? He's a bird. He likes to fly like in the wild. I was like, Okay. <laughs> Suddenly you were the crazy one in that conversation. <laughs> Suddenly I'm the crazy one. I'm like, yeah. I mean it's not it's not it's not wrong. Birds gotta fly. Fish gotta swim. <laughs> and then he's like, Oh yeah, my other bird's up in that tree and he just points to a tree next to us and I was like, looking at this tree, I can't see any birds and then like two of these bright green like this Hyde Park, like very common parakeets fly out of the the tree. And I was like, oh, is that, are those your birds? And he's like, no, 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 my bird was playing with those birds. He's still in the tree. <laughs> and I was like, cool. And you're and sure he, he wasn't w- messing with you. He just pretends, like n- next he walks up to somebody at a, at a duck pond. And he's like, oh, you like my ducks as well. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, it seemed to be his bird, but then he was like, oh, yeah. I was like, so you let it out and it comes back? He's like, yeah, yeah, it comes back. And then he went to show me that the bird, you know, would help on his finger and the bird just, like, fucked off out of it. <laughs> like, he, he went towards it and it, like, flew and did a circle around. And the thing is, I do actually think it was his bird. I think it was legitimately <laughs> because there was another guy also nearby and they were sort of watching me as I was approaching this bird. So I think they were – he thought I was going to steal his bird. But <laughs> that's <laughs> – that's what I like about being. I don't know. I love this. I love this kind of. Yeah, it's beautiful. The idea of taking a bird for a walk, like, it makes me really happy. Or taking it for a fly, it's just. Yeah, on on the cemetery that I used to walk my my kid. <laughs> that sounds weird. But when I when my 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 son was younger, um, I would always go for walks with him um, in a pram, and the the quietest and nicest park around here is actually a cemetery. So we would always walk between the tombstones, uh, which was sort of macabre, but at the same time, my my kid was like six months old, Mm. didn't care. Um, But there was also this lady that also liked the the peace and quietness of the the cemetery. So she would always go there with her two large parrots. Um, She would have a bike with a modified handlebar that has a large branch mounted to it and the birds would sit on that branch and then she would ride the bicycle with the birds on it slowly but still Sorry. ride the bike. <clears throat> Sorry, what I'm hearing is you're one-upping my bird story. I'm like, I saw a bird in a park and you're like, well, actually, <laughs> in Germany, it's perfectly normal to ride around it's... a cemetery with two parrots on your handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think... I, I don't. I wanted to say that it's not perfectly normal, and that sometimes <laughs> you just you just walk by and suddenly you see an, exo- uh, an exotic bird sitting somewhere where you don't expect it in a cemetery, and somewhere nearby is a person who says that it's theirs. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think what I wanted to say is I can relate to you. I didn't want to one up you, Tia. <laughs> not this time. <laughs> not this time. I think I'm. It's it's somewhere to go in the future. I think I'm going to age into getting some some birds and just taking them around. Yeah, I think I, I missed the mark with my cats, but I would like to have a pet that I can walk. That's not a dog. I think dog walking seems to be the thing that I want to do the least in my life. But I would yeah, walk any other pet. Yeah, seems so awful. I would walk a bird. I would walk uh, a guinea pig. If I could put a guinea pig on a harness and walk my neighborhood with it, I would totally do that. I think as a guinea pig, you've got the risk of like eagles, right? <laughs> Just like swooping it. 
<laughs> just like picking up that guinea pig and <laughs> goodbye yeah. guinea pig yeah i think guinea pigs are not usually the animals that have a large area that they want to roam and check out and and mark their territory i don't think that's guinea pigs they're not usually. curious by nature i think i mean i don't want to dismiss the entire breed <laughs> but i don't think they have that within them that i think if they did they would have evolved longer legs surely it's just not <laughs> although they're like i mean the name in german is like sea pig right so yeah. theoretically they adventured across the sea i mean they are a seafaring folk who have traveled far and wide to reach germany <laughs> But now they've settled the down. The, their adventure days are behind them, and now they've settled down. They like a carrot and some cucumber and a little nest to to hide in. <laughs> I I I know a scientist legitimately gave the <laughs> the reasoning that like people in the U.S. are more adventurous because all of the adventurous Europeans immigrated to the U.S. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> Uh, I think we're talking about GMOs and why GMOs weren't happening in Europe and that was the answer. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting. Oh my God. Not super comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, let's not comment on that further. Um, we don't, um, let's instead talk a little bit about some plant science, shall we? It's the paper of the week. I've just realized that the paper of the week this week actually happened several months ago. Um, it came out on the 3rd of November last year in Nature, and it is discussing the fact that there is a seagrass that is forming a loving and intimate relationship. And I do use the word intimate because that came up several times in the abstract, which I loved, um, with a nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So the title is Terrestrial Type Nitrogen-Fixing Symbiosis Between a Seagrass and a Marine Bacterium. And it's terrestrial type because these kind of symbioses are quite common on land, but this is kind of the first time it's been seen in a seagrass. The authors are Vibka Moore and colleagues, and the main institution, Yoram? <laughs> You're asking me that because I didn't put that in our notes. <laughs> Max Planck Institute for Marine Bi Microbiology in Bremen in Germany. That's where the corresponding yeah. author comes from. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this paper is about nitrogen and nitrogen fixation. And so I thought it would be nice to quickly recap like what nitrogen does in general, because we have a lot of it in the atmosphere, but the way it is in our atmosphere, no, nobody can use it. Um, it's sort of hanging around there and it's very inert. And that's why we use nitrogen gas when we want something not to happen. Then we flood it with nitrogen okay. gas and then nothing happens. Um, but plants would like to do something with nitrogen, and um, so to get their hands on it, they require bacteria. And there's this whole nitrogen cycle. It's complicated, has lots of like branches and um, and so on. But the general gist is there's bacteria living in the soil, either very close to the plants or in the plants, or just like somewhere in the soil. Uh, they take nitrogen from the air and then they fix that into organically accessible nitrogen that can be nitrates or ammonium and then organic um, things like uh, like plants or mushrooms or other things can take that up and grow from mm -hmm. it and then animals can eat the plants and then they turn the, the nitrogen back to ammonia and then some other bacteria break that down and then some release nitrogen gas again and the cycle continues so it's just like 
to clarify, they turn that nitrogen back into ammonia. You mean they pee? Like this is the peeing yes. process. It's like making <laughs> yes. uric acid. But I mean, just quickly to interject, the reason why nitrogen is so important is because it is the building block of all amino acids and DNA, and like you need nitrogen in all of these things that make us live. Yeah. So. Super important to have it, but hard for us to get um, unless we rely on on bacteria to do that that sneaky transformation process. Yeah. And in plants, we have the legume family that's very notorious for having this close relationship with the nitrogen-fixing fix bacteria um, that live in, in the roots, in nodules, and then there's a symbiosis going on there. The plants give them carbon, sugars, and... Uh, uh, bacteria directly provide them with fixed nitrogen and so both of them thrive and uh, is a very important step for example in agriculture that you you plant legumes to enrich nitrogen in the soil then um, through these bacteria so on, on land plants we know a lot about it and we are sort of very interested in in managing it so I guess the we should talk about a bit what this paper is about, which is not land plants, but instead is seagrasses. And seagrasses are still plants. They're in fact flowering plants like angiosperms that have weirdly gone back to the water. So this is like different from other seaweed things, which are algaes. These are actually plants which kind of like headed out and then dolphined their way back in and were like, you know what? <laughs> This whole living on land, it's not what it's its cracked up to be. Yeah. Let's go back. Um, and I want to mention here that at this point that Yoram was the one who chose to write the notes today. And he was in kind of a frisky mood when writing the notes, I would say. <laughs> so the notes say seagrasses are like super good at fixing carbon. They form large meadows under the sea where they grow in grass-like structures. Which I think is what I learned very early on in English is not how we define something. <laughs> it's like a seagrass <laughs> is a grass-like sea thing. Um, but anyway, take it away, Yaram. What do they do with nitrogen? Where do they get their nitrogen from? Um, so they usually they can get it from the water, like fish pee as well. And so there is some nitrogen in the water from animals that live in the water. And then the plants can take that up. But seagrass has this ability to grow very quickly and um, uh, accumulate a lot of biomass. They're actually a major carbon sink, so they take up a lot of carbon dioxide and fix that into biomass. And their growth, based on the speed that they accumulate carbon, doesn't fit to the amount of nitrogen they could suck from the sea. Especially in, for example, in this in this case, they they studied um, seagrasses in in Italy in the Mediterranean Sea, and this is rather depleted of nitrogen. And still, these seagrasses they grow a lot. So somewhere they must they must have found a source of nitrogen. Otherwise, they could not keep up with the the rate of growth. Um, so it was suggested. It was suggested that there might be some bacteria at play, but until now, nobody could describe them. Could uh, nobody had found them, or um, yeah, it was sort of a, a, a gap in the in the sea nitrogen cycle where like there must be something there, probably some microbes, but we don't know yet. Yeah, so I think they they were saying that they thought there would be nitrogen fixing bacteria sort of living in the sludgy bottom, so mm -hmm. there's something sort of. Not within the plant itself, but in the the sludge that surrounds the plant at the bottom of the sea, but not not like they found here. So what did they find here? They took this seagrass species. It's specifically called Poseidonia oceanica, which is just like sea god, like Poseidon. I think it's called Poseidon's seagrass in the common name, right? Poseidon being 
go to the ocean. Anyway, um, and then they started doing some experiments. I mean, the first thing they did was they found out that it grew really fast, right? They were like, why is it growing very fast? Mm-hmm. Um, let's look into this. Yeah, and so they they went to Italy, and so we said the the institute is a Max Planck Institute for Marine Microbiology that's in Bremen. Um, I know it as a sort of uh, rainy place. It's in summer, it can be nice, <laughs> but overall, it's a rather like German gray rainy weather. But so they decided to study somewhere else in Italy, in um, in the Mediterranean Sea. It's like sort of between Italy and Corsica is the, the uh, study site, and. Um, there they looked underwater and looked at the the seagrass meadows and um, measured just the the growth rate of the seagrasses. I think like going with your Bremen to Italy theory. I think it's it also comes up in the paper that they importantly had to measure both in spring and in summertime. <laughs> we yeah. just we just checked in summer and then we we thought you know what spring too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and they they realized that yes the meadows they take up carbon dioxide as expected um and the so- the sandy uh, soil around them actually releases carbon dioxide probably because there's microorganisms living in these sludges and they slowly metabolizing um compounds and releasing carbon dioxide um but around the plants there was no detectable amount of nitrogen in the seawater that plants could live on like no bioavailable nitrogen there Um, which brings us back to the beginning of the question like how do they do that how can they actually grow and fix carbon when they have no nitrogen apparently in the water so they plunked some of the seagrass into an experimental context and they're using radio-labeled nitrogen, but nitrogen that is not fixed. So it's just this N2 form. So it's they're shoving that in sort of the water and putting the plant there and trying to see if the plant has access to it. And they found that it did, basically. It took that nitrogen up and it took it up insanely rapidly. I think they found that up to... 20% of the nitrogen that was fixed was already like assimilated into the leaf biomass within 24 hours. So there was something that was fixing this nitrogen and then getting it into the leaves of the plants just insanely fast. Yeah. And they could also see that in, in summer, when the grasses were growing, you would have um, the nitrogen making its way into the plants and um, no uh, inorganic, so N2 nitrogen, the nitrogen that we have in the air, in the water, around the plants, and they were fixing carbon. And then in in winter, it was switched around. And you would have no take-up of nitrogen into the plants because the plants weren't growing at the time, um, um, probably due due to the temperatures. But you had available available nitrogen in the water, which tells me that um, when there is this um, nitrogen-fixing activity happening, they suck out all of the nitrogen in the water that when you go and measure, you actually can't find any in the water because it's all being fixed and when the fixing stops then you again see nitrogen in the water around the plants yeah so they they wanted to work out what was doing the fixing because you know plants don't really know how to do that so it couldn't be the plant so they did the the standard kind of thing of looking like some quick sequencing so 16s rrna just looking to identify different sorts of bacteria and things that might be living in the roots um and they asked whether this could possibly be nitrogen fixing bacteria yaram could this be the nitrogen fixing bacteria that they found yes it could be um thank you yaram (laughs) and especially one microbe guy stood out (laughs) 
Sorry, carry on. Yeah, they, they found one microbe um, that belongs to the genus. And now, like, I hope that you get um, <laughs> you, you get the task of reading a name. Celerinatantimonas? Your turn. Celerinatantimonas. Celerinatantimonas. <laughs> it's really like I just don't understand where you put the the focus. Celerina, celerinata, celerinatantimonas, celerinatantimonas. Maybe it's that celerinatantimonas. Celerinatantimonas. Um. Yeah, um, this is a genus of bacteria where you find many nitrogen-fixing bacteria that associate with plants. Um, but the closest relative to the microbe that I found in the seawater um, is a microbe that fixes nitrogen for grasses that grow in salt marshes. So I think that's where you have m like regular floodings of seawater into land areas where then you have a high salt content. Um, and then you have these sort of extremophile grasses living there. And apparently like a relative to this bacterium that fixes nitrogen. Okay, please tell, tell us what the name of the seagrass is microbe was so it's it's sort of a new species like as far as identifying yeah. it right yeah um, okay and and they picked candidatus celerina tantimonas neptuna and neptuna is named after neptune and i like go looked it up and i found that there's a very famous fountain that's built by neptune in rome and i guess that's where they got the name from um to name no this they got they gave it the name because <laughs> are, you, are you kidding me? i'm gonna kill you Oh my god, I just like, I just, I can't not correct this. It makes me so upset <laughs> that I have to mansplain to you why you're stupid. This really hurts me. I knew that. All right, moving on. Okay, um, so was there anything else that we should be mentioning about this paper apart from Yarm's ridiculousness? Um, that's it, right? This is kind of important because now we can understand why these organisms can get so much nitrogen in places where there doesn't seem to be much nitrogen around or not much bioavailable nitrogen around. And this is also important because seagrasses have, as Yara mentioned, this huge role, you know, as blue carbon, as ability to grow very rapidly and, and capture carbon. And they, they need to be also taking up nitrogen in order to, to take the carbon. So this is also a thing with plants where... Sometimes they'll stop growing, not because they're lacking the ability to make carbon from photosynthesis, but because they don't have other resources like nitrogen or phosphorus or things that they need to grow. So, yeah, this is a, a quite a cute story. Very nice. I, I really liked actually the paper had a really quite a storytelling way of, of being written as well. There was a lot of things where like, oh, we speculate this and we're not really sure of this, which reminded me of some like older school science, which I think we, we lack a lot sometimes. I mean, mm -hmm. This is a bit how science should be and that you should be able to say, look, we, we can't tell this at this point, but this is like a cool thing that we think is happening. So they were discussing even the exchanges that were happening. So they thought that the bacteria was making certain amino acids and then passing them onto the plants, but they're like, they weren't super certain that that was what was happening. But I don't know, yeah. I really enjoyed that. I like a little, you know, a little bit of uncertainty in my science is kind of enjoyable. Yeah, uh, I think it, it, it read very well, this paper. Um it's not always the case sometimes science can read very dry even though it's very exciting but this one uh is, is really a recommendation to to read through it also has some nice figures um it goes also a little bit into more detail in in the relationship between the plant and the bacteria the potential trades that can, could happen um and also a little bit about the 
hypothesized evolutionary history. We said it has uh, a relative with these grasses growing in these salt marshes, and it could it, you could construct a history where they then slowly like moved away from the coastal lines deeper into the water and taking the bacteria with them having already salt tolerant bacteria from the salt marsh and then from a salt marsh to the sea is not that huge of a leap um and yeah it's very exciting because not many uh sea plants as far as i know are known to be living in the nitrogen fixing symbiosis so it's 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 really cool stuff <laughs> so that was um I'm still so bugged by the nitrogen. I feel like my whole face is twitching. Uh, that was terrestrial type nitrogen fixing symbiosis between seagrass and a marine bacterium. The seagrass is called Poseidon. The bacteria has something to do with Neptune. Apparently, it's related to a fountain. I hate Yoram. It came out in November last year in Nature. <laughs> this is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I learned today that apparently x-ray microscopy is a thing and I didn't know that it's a thing. I knew that you could make microscopy images with light and with electromagnetic wave and I mean light is electromagnetic waves but with like in electromicroscopy you use higher energy things but apparently you can also do that with x-rays. And now there's a paper that I found, and it's open access, and you should check it out, um, that says X-ray microscopy enables multi-scale, high-resolution, 3D imaging of plant cells, tissues, and organs. And they are not overselling it. You can really make um, images of plants at different scales from the same plant. So you look at the entire inflorescence, and then you zoom in, and it's like in a CSI movie. You enhance and you enhance. Click on the two links that I put in there that um, I will have them also in the show notes um, with stuff from, from Figshare where you can see um, still images, but also something that you want to see. Uh, it's called volume rendering, where they reconstruct the 3D volume and then they zoom into that and enhance and enhance. And it's from, so beautiful. From a three-dimensional overview structure, you just say, oh, I'm interested in that little bit in that organ there. And then you zoom in and then you say, like, I'm can i see the cells please and then you can see the cells in there and and it's crazy and all of that without destroying the plant usually can you do that prometheus thing there when you zoom in one more time and then it's like c c t c g a c a and it shows you like a string of letters that's what i want i want that one that that's next step <laughs> next step next step yeah sorry this is incredible i'm looking at it as you speak yeah um it's 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 really beautiful and amazing for science and usually when you do reconstruction imagery you take slices and sometimes you do the slices by confocal microscopy where you don't have to destroy the sample but still your sample has to be contained between two glass slides so it can't be very tall so you can reconstruct like a couple of cells um, then you can do stuff like tomography where you um, sort of do computational re um, reconstructions, but that's also complicated. And sometimes you literally cut like s s uh, thin slices that are just a couple of micrometers or even smaller. Um, and then and also like, there's one way it's like you scratch it off, like you kind of yeah. like... Scratch it off. Sometimes etch. with laser, you you etch it away with lasers. Um, but always you take like layer after layer. You take a picture and then in the computer reconstruct it. But then your sample is destroyed. Um, and this X-ray microscopy can be done without destroying the sample. Um, and that's really really cool. And they did that on a couple of plant tissues to illustrate the technique. And 
I, I, I have no idea how complicated the, the preparation for that is or the machinery and all that, but it would be really cool if that would be more uh, available to many people. But like bottom line is go and check the links that we're putting in the show notes and look at some of the of the images there. Um, they're really, really cool. Oh, I I had a, a press thing, which is like very, it's very local. I think it, I mean... It's Piccadilly Circus in the UK, but they just had this huge uh, sort of face of David Attenborough on the corner of a building, and he is pro-plant now. So it's the quote is, we depend upon them for every mouthful of food we eat and every lungful of air we breathe. So finally, somebody's standing up for the plants. And so this was to... <laughs> it's, it sounded I like mean, he's pro-plant now as if he was anti-plant before. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying he had like a lot of documentaries about like penguins and I think only one about plants. I mean, they all had plants in them, mm-hmm. but that was the private life. I mean, he's been pretty but fine, fine. Um, <laughs> anyway, this was just like a promotion of the green planet that came out. But then they had him saying this stuff and then it dropped away and it was just, you know, the whole building was filled with plants. Mm. It's like a disused part of a building and it's just like a little forest in there so i'm gonna go seek that out now uh i i read that um there are more tree species uh around than we previously thought um there's around uh, about nine thousand two hundred more that- tree species uh estimated to exist about 14 mm-hmm. percent more than what we what we used to think um then than previous estimates. Uh, And this is based on a statistical analysis of two large databases, the Global Forest Biodiversity Initiative and Tree Change in all capitals. Um, I I hope it's not an acronym for something. Um, And they they used new statistical tools, uh, looked at the the data sets in a different way, and they came up with a large number of tree species. And like always, the article that I found, um, the second half is pretty much... Um, about climate change and how we have to rush to discover these tree species before they might go extinct before anybody has seen them um but i don't want to i don't feel like going deeply into this i think this is a story that we've told before but i think it's um it's cool to know that we now estimate that we have around seventy-three thousand tree species in total on on earth um that which is Still nothing compared to the eight to ten times more funky that are on Earth. Was that the <laughs> yes. number that Merlin gave us? Eight to ten? T- okay, come on, plants. We can do it. We can find a few tens of times more plants <laughs> to yeah. really compete. Yeah, but <laughs> we're slowly catching up. Like a couple more statistical analyses <laughs> and we're on par with the mushrooms. <laughs> I think the fastest way is to start wiping out mushrooms, let's be honest. Like just... <laughs> go at them (laughs) we probably don't use them for much like i mean what they do they decompose things like what's gonna happen we're gonna have a bit more wood in the world (laughs) yeah we need about like five to ten kinds of mushrooms and that's really it look we're all agree that we'll keep a couple of the yeasts like a few of the yeast not the ones that grow on human bodies but the ones that like make our beer and bread we'll keep those ones around yes and the rest of them must go so that the plants reign supreme in the number of species (laughs) away I do remember, like, when I was 
when I was a child, I was reading sci-fi, some terrible sci-fi, and one of them was a book. It was by a famous writer, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was like a big name sci-fi writer. And the book was about like one of these how some countries, and I think the country was China in the book. Um, the writer was not Chinese, had decided to wipe out insects as a way because like insects were stealing their crops, and they decided to get rid of all insects. What it was just it was it infuriated me so much because I was like this is a stupid premise this is just <laughs> nobody is that stupid a three year old is not that stupid like we no <laughs> no but, I just couldn't get over what yeah what? I I don't take away the point of your story um but uh, isn't that what happened not with insects but with sparrows that they exterminated and I think after the Mao revolution they exterminated sparrows in China. Um, because they said they're stealing their crops and then had like a major ecosystem collapse because they were killing sparrows all across the country in very large numbers. And it turns out they filled a role in the ecosystems. And when they were gone, the ecosystems did not react to that very well. And um, they had major... Um, okay, so let's, let's also like, not kill all the sparrows. Eff but like, this was like all the insects. And also, you know how, you know, a sci-fi, yes. a good sci-fi should have a little clever twist at the end that you don't expect. This story was about how insects were sort of joining together to form human like they were basically a mass of insects in human shape wearing big trench coats trying to cross the border to get like out of China or into China like that was the plot line. I was like this doesn't make any sense why is this happening why am I wasting my childhood reading this nonsense yeah my father bought yes. a lot of books from the second hand shop and sometimes I think he didn't really quality control for them <laughs> All right. Um, my other fact is about flowers opening and closing. So I just saw this paper and it's it's a bit the paper itself, but more about this idea of flowers opening and closing. I think it's quite a famous phenomenon, like flowers open, they close, they also move around. Sunflowers following the sun are pretty famous. And it's it's been sort of in the public attention since the times of Darwin. This is a thing that happens. And normally we think of flowers as opening during the day open up, let the bees mm -hmm. in, or opening specifically during the night if you want to attract something like a moth or maybe a bat. Um, so you've kind of got those two as the main things. But this paper was looking at a different species, which is called Odea gentianopus paludosa. Um, it's a nice, fairly plain, purple-looking flower, nothing too exciting. But it grows on the QTP, so the... Qinghai, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, Tibetan Plateau. It's this very high mountainous region, which is called the Third Pole. So you've got the North Pole, the, the South Pole, and the QTP. So really important region. Um, cool organisms up there and just like geographically, biologically important. And it grows up there and they it's, it seems to close its flower in the daytime, but like not for the whole day, just during the middle of the day. So they're sort of looking into why it's doing that it just like sort of gives up has a little siesta <laughs> like naps for a few hours and then it opens again and they wanted to understand why <laughs> yeah i mean who can and they wanted it? to understand why so they did a different a few different experiments where they basically kept it um open or they forced it to close so that it wouldn't be able to close let me just have a look it's it's opening they've got a, a nice little time 
series. It's opening at like eight, nine o'clock, getting a, its start of the working day. Fully open by 10, 11, 12, and then at like one o'clock, it just sort of gives up and goes back in again. It's like, whoop. Um, and they wanted to understand why this was happening. And then they, so they just did sort of standard things looking at the temperature, the relative humidity, um, things like that that might be affecting, and also like illumination intensity to see what was impacting on it. And they basically found that it seems that keeping the flower closed quite understandably keeps stuff inside the flower nice and cozy. It's got like a low humidity. It's everything is kind of nice and, and cozy within the flower. So there was no problems if they forced the flower closed, but when they forced it to stay open and didn't let it close, they found that there was a significant effect on the quality of the seeds that the flower produced. So based on this, they're saying that there's something about these environmental conditions at that time of day, which is just a bit too harsh for the flower. So he has a little closure to protect himself and yeah, therefore saves some energy, increases seed production and makes everything a little bit better for the survival of the flower, the plant. Yeah, I, I, I can relate. Um, around one, I often would like to take a nap as well and think the environment right now is too harsh. <laughs> I would like to close down and um, come back in the afternoon. Um, but it's not always possible with two screaming kids. Um, so very jealous of this little flower. Um, I have something that I want to discuss with you. I read a paper. Um, um, it's not a, a paper. It's an, like a... A letter or an article, but it's like another research article on eLife from uh, Eve Marder. Um, it's called Living Science Authorship Then and Now. And the text discusses uh, the, the way we decide who to put in the author list on a research paper and how it has changed. Uh, in the 70s, uh, often it was very common that you would have single author papers uh, because there was only one person who significantly contributed to the data in the paper. Um, and also often the, the research communities were smaller, there weren't, weren't as people, uh, many people um, involved, and also the sort of the experiments were technically often harder than today, but sort of from the findings, not as complex as today's papers. Like the papers increased in complexity um, over time. Um, uh, but so th- there was a time when there was only single authors on papers or then very few authors. And so um, Eve Marda, and she also tells the story of Guido Guidotti, um, they had this tradition of not writing the name on the paper as the head of a lab even when they did not contribute anything to the data in the paper. Even though it was a postdoc or a student from their lab, if they didn't add anything of value to the paper, they wouldn't put their name on it because they say, like, why why would I, even though, like, it's my lab, but I'm not putting my paper, my name on that until funding agencies then um, had a problem with that and, like, had them come and explain why they did not have the output because only papers with their name counted towards the ful- fulfillment of the grant. And this changed now the way that um, often on papers you have now... Um, the people, like the people on there, are not only there for the contribution to the research, but also for political reasons or for funding reasons. That the the head of the lab has to be on the paper, even though they might not have contributed to the paper, um, because this is how it's analyzed if they if they're worth the funding that they received. Um, and this this little article is sort of mourning um, the fact that that 
the the author lists moved a little bit away from the the ideal of having only real contributors to the paper to something that's a little bit broader, a little bit more diffuse, who sort of deserves to be on the paper. And I found that interesting to 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 think of, think about that. Um, how, yeah, not not always everybody who is on the paper would be able to tell you what's in the paper. If you invite them for a talk about the paper, not everybody on the author list necessarily would be able to give like a very good talk on the paper. I sometimes have the feeling um, from like my own limited experience. And um, yeah, I don't know really how I feel about this because I, I understand why you have other reasons to put people on the paper, but that's why I wanted to talk about this. I feel very strongly against it. <laughs> I feel I what? What how? Sorry, what? <laughs> how do you feel Is about it? Is it an this? opinion piece? And it's just an yeah. opinion? Yeah, yeah. It's like I No mean, no, but I mean the paper that's being written with a single author. There's I'm sorry, these days it's so in unreal it's very unlikely. Like there are situations, but I think it's quite unlikely that there's only one author on yeah. a paper. It, it can happen. But also, why would you want it to happen? Usually these days, we're trying to get towards a place of more integrated, interdisciplinary research. And that should be encouraged. But also, realistically, when people are kept off papers, it's usually people with less power who are kept off paper. So usually, if a name remains on the paper, it's... I mean, okay, they're saying this person's great because he put only his PhD students' names. Sure. Usually, it goes the other way around. Usually, who gets left off are people like technicians who did a lot of manual labor, but like are not considered to be part of the, the team because they don't have their own doctor title or people who have contribute a lot but don't have scientific um, discipline backgrounds. So, for example, like local indigenous landholders are often not included in like ecosystem papers, um, even though their knowledge is needed to make the findings in the paper, but because they themselves are not trained scientists, this is ignored. So I know I'm so skeptical of this. I really, this really concerns me that this is being, I mean, this is not, this is not, promo for. this is not promoting the idea of having single author papers. Um, it, it is an is opinion piece by a single author. I want to know, like <laughs> yes. there's a single author and not, till, I, I think the, the idea here is that everybody who's on the paper should have had a significant role in in creating or collecting the data they for the paper. But then you just made the comment about they should be able to give a talk on the paper. And I don't think that's true because I think we have so many specialized things of knowledge. Like I did some stuff which involved a DNA sequencing, like not DNA sequencing, RNA sequencing even. And I have no idea how to map that ah. to genomes and... Why should I have to learn all of the parts of everything? Mm -hmm. And why should the person who has those skills, like a bioinformatician, he shouldn't have to understand the more whatever the hell I was, whatever skills I had. This, <laughs> that's not how it works. You should communicate and collaborate. This is... Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. Maybe idea, I phrase it to, to, to extreme with like, you should be able to give a talk on that. Um, but I think this is specifically talking, <laughs> talking about like PIs, like... Um, uh, group leaders or lab leaders um, who are like under under whom science is done, but they're not necessarily always involved. But they're on all of the papers that happen in their group. And I think the argument in this in this text is um, that in the in the eyes of Eve Marder, and I hope I'm like doing her justice when saying that um, sometimes it would be nice if we would c c come back to a system where you could just give 
the attention on the author list to the people who actually did the signs and not the people who were getting the grant money in but then did not nothing to the signs. I can understand some of those arguments, but like there's two points for that. So firstly, you can say, okay, these old names should not appear on this paper just because they're giving the money. I agree, but I don't agree that they shouldn't be on the paper. I agree that they should be doing more than just giving the money. Like, especially when it comes to PhD students, you're a student, your supervisor has a role to educate you. So if they've only given the money, that's not just that they've failed at getting the name of the paper. They've not done their entire job. They're paying you a half salary because you are getting an education for them so it's not acceptable that we say we'll then just scrap their name off the paper because it's not that they shouldn't just be on the paper they should not have PhD students if they are not involved in raising up those PhD students so this is like this is the wrong way to go about it and the second point is again going back to times of yore is so dangerous because we know that women got taken off those papers we know that people of color we know that the people who were not on those papers were not the white dudes like it hasn't been done well in the past and so so often now we find stories of like oh like this person actually contributed a lot to this scientific discovery oh why wasn't that why was their name only in their acknowledgements and it happens not just in science it happens in every field you hear these stories of like great artists or great writers who like wife writes half their book for them or types up their notes or something it doesn't get any I this this is it makes me anxious and again I sorry I haven't read this um <laughs> article but like the way you're portraying it here like mm, no no it's just, I have such a strong no like that's that's why I wanted to bring oh. it here I, I was I was exactly <laughs> interested in that in that opinion um and as I said like I'm I'm sort of on the fence um the author ends here on um uh like you're, you can't still be on the fence or I have to shout at you for the next twenty minutes. <laughs> Um, she she ends here, and I think I'll I'll let like her her words end this 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 little blog is like. Meanwhile, some of the old ways are best. We should only be authors on papers when we have contributed in a substantive substantive way. That should go without saying. But as with so much in today's world, ethical principles seem increasingly at odds with practice. That's her opinion on here, and I I I found it interesting to discuss that because I'm also not like a hundred percent on board on that. Um, because yeah, the realities are often different, this and on eLife it's cool that. Um, researchers can or like people can comment and you have an active discourse and there's actually some people responding to that and they they're exactly putting that into perspective and saying like look it's not that simple yeah and again when you say things like contribute it in a substantive way I'm so anxious when you say that, but you don't have a little asterisk next to substantive and say one of the points, one of the problems we have in the current system is that the way we define these things are so based on an old system that's that's screwed. We think that financial support is substantive, like that is okay, but we don't think that perhaps intellectual contribution has the same value. We definitely don't think that emotional support has any value at all when it comes to science. So you have to be having these little asterisks. It's not okay anymore to not have these little be like by the way like we can't just say it should be this we need to also address how our field is even defining these terms because that's the problem we have with these things and with like assessing cvs and the definitions themselves need to be overthrown and by overthrown i mean burned down <laughs> <laughs> Cat fact. Introduction. Domestic cats, 
Felis Catus are our wild companions, filling complex roles in contemporary society and ecosystems as companion animals and pest controllers. Crowley et al. 2020. <laughs> um, I just found a paper, and it's it's like not very much. It's just a paper from a journal by the British Ecological Society that's called People and Nature. And I kind of like this journal because it's looking at how people interact with nature, which is always kind of a fascinating topic, which I think gets overlooked a little bit. Um, and it's just looking at the, it's called Popular Press Portrayal of Issues Surrounding Free-Roaming Domestic Cats, Felis Catus. And I was really, really excited because I thought, finally, somebody's going to look at the anti-cat propaganda that is going on in this world, or this pro-dog nonsense um, <laughs> when they don't even know how to bury their own poop. But it's a little bit more of an academic story than I would have hoped. Um, they were did sort of a a content analysis of nearly 800 different media articles written in English from the 1990s to 2018 to look at how people related issues to free roaming cats. So this is about that like cats, we kind of like cats, but at the same time, cats are really, really, really awful um, for for mammals and also reptiles and amphibians and, and birds. And so they wanted to see if, if the press was coming down pro-cat or anti-cat and also what the management strategies were suggesting to deal with the cat nuisance problem um, and basically yeah they found a little bit what you you expect to see like people like cats but and want the cats to have rights and welfare but also they need to consider how the cats interact with other animals unsurprisingly also a lot of a lot of articles focus on how cats hurt birds and small mammals because they're cute but nobody really cares about how cats impact reptiles and amphibians because they're less cute uh, probably work on that reptiles and amphibians that might be a little bit on you um, if any if any of our listeners are in fact amphibians or reptiles maybe um work on your your own PR and the the basic (laughs) conclusion of the piece is that you know it's often oversimplified the issues that are presented so the coverage of cats is unbalanced (laughs) and I again I I wanted this to go somewhere a little bit further where it's like and also let me tell you about the propaganda but it didn't but I don't know (laughs) it's interesting that people are doing these kind of talks and more more generally I like this this journal that this journal exists people and nature looking at the mm-hmm. the interactions in both directions of um these elements yeah uh on my task to befriend a crow so my interaction between me as a people with nature um i couldn't find any crows yet they're hiding from me um so did i give you did i give you homework crow work crow has crow work, <laughs> crow, did crow I give, work. <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry uh did i give you crow homework no you didn't what should uh, I do? With, like no, I, just, I, just, I, I, I said that the, my goal for this year is to befriend a crow. That's what I want to do I with my that. life so this year. Okay. And I found on TikTok today. I saw somebody like you can buy on Etsy a kit a to crow? build a crow feeder where they put a shiny thing in a in a box and then they get some cat food as a return. So you can train the local crows to give you <gasps> shiny things and then they can bring you like money and like like coins and. <laughs> other shiny oh objects but i think it's like etsy in the united states so i don't think i can get that here but i'm i'm really considering <laughs> training That's my so cats cool. my cats my crows in a garden to bring me shiny objects and then i've seen a video of this it wasn't a crow but it was like some bird was just bringing like bills in they had like trained their bird to like steal dollar bills or something from people like it picked up money <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the, amazing. In, in the TikTok, they said that uh, mostly they get trash because they get shiny pieces of aluminum foil and, and stuff like that. And if they leave their own trash open, then the, the crows will just take the trash <laughs> from the bin and bring it over to the feeder, drop it in there, get some cat food out, and then so they the 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 person just gets their own trash handed back to them and the crows crows make money off of it um but i'm really this is like i would like to have 90 percent of the you know uh, germany has quite a, a good amount of dollars going towards like Fraunhofer to like institutes to develop advanced applied science like 90 percent of that money in australia actually goes towards designing new sorts of bins that crows can't <laughs> knock over because they're really good at just like knocking over trash cans or like lifting them and just like throwing everywhere in their search for <laughs> I guess chips I don't know um, so we would also have these intricate like it's like these intricate devices that then humans also couldn't get into but we're like yes finally like the crows can't get into our trash but yeah I've, I've heard somewhere the quote from, from from Canada that there's a significant overlap between the smartest bears and the dumbest tourists and it makes it hard to design trash cans there because if the trash can that's is definitely Australia yeah that's us <laughs> with the crows that's it <laughs> I mean the ones in our school we had special ones that yeah you couldn't knock over and you had to like twist and but then like I mean teenagers aren't going to do that they're not going <laughs> to what are you thinking like Go for, like a 10 step protocol to relock the bins <laughs> it's not even it's not even smart it is like a, like can do attitude like perseverance like a teenager just doesn't have time in their day to go <laughs> through that like crows have got nothing else to do in their lives like <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm literally what I'm afraid of. If I attract crows to my garden, that they will start to to wreak havoc on my stuff because they want more more food. <laughs> and so I mostly there's I want, only if one I, way if, to find out. If I give them food, I want to do it on other people's property. So <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of <laughs> shitty. You got those really kind of <laughs> shitty neighbors on the right there. So I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> always th uh, throwing crow food over there yeah so i think um with that we can end the show today um um thank you for listening if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on social media on twitter you can talk to me that's at plants pets on instagram and sometimes on facebook it's at plants and pets and we also have a website which is www.plantsandpipettes.com Yes, and uh, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And bye. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>